brought to you by RunToGold.com, the premier source for monetary science applied to geopolitical, international, and economic financial news and events. Welcome back to the 39th episode of the RunToGold.com podcast. I was on a nationally syndicated radio show with Mark Perlman, so here it is. Welcome to Your Money Matters. Get answers to everyday financial questions from buying cars to selling homes and everything in between. Your host, Mark Perlman, is a noted author and financial specialist dedicated to helping you deal with the financial decisions you make each and every day. Mark Perlman is a registered representative of and offers securities through Securities America Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. And now here's Mark Perlman with this week's edition of Your Money Matters. Welcome to this week's edition of Your Money Matters. I am your host, Mark Perlman. This is a show about everyday finance for everyday people. We don't just talk about the financial markets on this show. We cover it all. If it's got anything to do with money, we'll talk about it right here on this show. However, tonight we're going to talk about the financial markets and we're going to get a perspective on the bigger picture with some help from tonight's guest. For the people who are listening to the show, it can be heard in up to 18 states over the traditional airwaves. And thanks to our partners over at iTunes, where this show is also carried, people can hear us all over the world. So thank you for listening, no matter how you're listening, and we certainly appreciate all the emails we receive as well. Let me get into uh, sticking with the format of the show, get into a couple of those now. This one is from Cy in Beckett, Mass. He had this to say, I enjoy your show, but wish you only covered the financial markets. The guests are always well-versed, and you seem so sincere, and I appreciate the material. Well, thanks, Cy. I appreciate that. Uh, you know, we try to cover a lot of topics. People, that's kind of what makes this show different than uh, than other financial shows is that we don't exclusively cover the financial markets, although we do try to uh, talk about that quite a bit. But we like to cover a bunch of different things, and uh, you know, you're in luck because uh, tonight's show we're going to cover the gold markets, so uh, so that works out for you. Thanks again for the email. Anyone who wants to send us an email, we love to hear it. You can always, uh, well, actually, you don't really hear emails. I guess you read them. But we love, we love getting them. You can send those to question at yourmoneymattersradio.com. Here's one more from Darren. Mark, stumbled on your show and really liked it. Is there a way to download the shows onto an MP3 player? That's a great question, Darren. You know, I'm not a technical guy. Well, a little bit. I understand this stuff a little bit. But uh, I'm not the guy uh, to necessarily uh, uh, answer that question for you. And again, for any of our listeners, if you ever have any questions um, as far as the ability to listen to things or any technical questions, you can send an email to tech support at yourmoneymattersradio.com, and they will answer your question in a timely manner and hopefully give you the right information. So uh, that's uh, that's not my bag, Darren. Sorry. But hey, keep those emails coming. You can always send the, those to question at yourmoneymattersradio.com. And also for the people who uh, you know may be new to the show, uh, who don't listen regularly, we do manage money professionally for people when we're not hosting this show, and you can contact us about that. If you want counsel on what's going on, how to handle this environment, regardless of where you are in the country, give my office a call at 800-942-2040. One more time, at 1-800-942-2040. Or you can go visit my firm website, which is markperlman.com, and that's a mark with a C. As getting back to the radio show stuff, which is why we're here, go visit us at uh, yourmoneymattersradio.com. You get information about our guests, upcoming show information, all that kinds of stuff. I ought to just record that. I say it every single week and three or four times during the show. I ought to just save my breath. I ought to record it and then just hit a little record, you know, a little play button when I, when I'm supposed to say that stuff. And, uh, you know, then my job would be much easier. I could just come and talk for 15 minutes and, uh, and, and do that. But hey, all that information is there. Go to, uh, go check it out. There's, uh, information about our guests. All the shows are archived. 
and uh, the free newsletter that is there too. And uh, usually things that are free are worth just that, but this actually happens to have some value. So go check it out. Two-page newsletter, free at yourmoneymattersradio.com. All right, enough with that. Tonight, we're going to go uh, get a lesson on golden currency, which is actually going to be a refreshing change, I think, from what we might read in the mainstream uh, mainstream. Uh, news media, and we're going to get a great perspective that I think you're going to find illuminating. And to share this fresh perspective with us, we have Trace Meyer. Trace is an uh, interesting individual. He's a monetary scientist, he's an entrepreneur, and he's a journalist. And uh, his background is in both accounting as well as he's got a law degree. He's authored a book, uh, The Great Credit Contraction, and he subscribes to the School of Austrian Economics, which is, uh, again, kind of a, a step away from the neoclassical uh, economic theories, and we're interested to hear about that. So, uh, without further ado, welcome to the show, Trace. Oh, thanks, Mark. Welcome. All right. Hey, I, I guess I have a quick question for you here, although I, I think I know the answer to it, but anyway, I'll uh, I'll ask. What is really the difference between, I know there's different schools of thought on uh, on economics, there's kind of that freshwater, saltwater, um, you know, theories that are out there, and then, you know, the, there's the Chicago um, uh, Chicago theories, and Austrian, can you tell us what distinguishes, you, you know, your uh, methodology as opposed to maybe some other neoclassical? Well, sure. Um, in the in the 20th century, there were three main uh, economic thinkers, and so the other, pretty much all all the economic theories out there are traced back to these uh, three great thinkers. Uh, one of them was Ludwig von Mises, and he's uh, the Austrian school. Then you've got uh, John Maynard Keynes. And he's, uh, of course, Keynesian economics. And then you've got uh, Fisher, and he's a little bit more of your classical economics. And so these three different schools, they all approach economics from a different uh, vantage point. And uh, the Austrians, they, they like to make the argument that, that they approach it uh, scientifically. Uh, and, and so they, they, uh, the arguments uh, from the Austrian school are much more... Uh, found through like a, a logical or deductive reasoning uh, type of pattern versus the other two, which focus mainly on the uh, they, they do a lot of uh, metrics and math. And the Austrian school, of course, has had uh, some luminaries like F. A. Hayek, who uh, won the Nobel Prize uh, for talking about how uh, central bank intervention actually exacerbated. Uh, the business cycle versus providing a stabilizing force. And then uh, there are other luminaries such as Murray Rothbard or uh, Lou Rockwell, uh, Thomas Woods. So the the Austrian school, while it is a minority viewpoint uh, in economics, uh, they they try to make the, the, the argument that they are engaged in the study of the science of economics and that uh, Keynesianism is actually more like political dogma. And so those types of economists are actually more like court economists, kind of like there were court scientists uh, back hundreds of years ago that uh, said that the uh, sun revolved around the earth to perpetuate the establishment. So likewise, we have these court economists that today uh, kind of deny basic economic law in order to perpetuate a certain political dogmas versus uh, going and looking directly, uh, trying to discern the economic laws that are at work, right. uh, but not necessarily making political value judgments about those economic laws. 
Well, you know what's interesting? I mean, you know, and, and I'm a money guy, right? But the thing is, I mean, I find that for most people, I mean, unless you're kind of in the economic realm like like you are and kind of write about it and, and study it, most people don't care, right? They don't care the, the theory. They just kind of look at economics from the from a very simple standpoint that, you know, how much money do they have? Do they have enough to buy the things that they want or or, or the things that they need? And I think that people look at it in, in that, uh, you know, in that realm, kind of on an everyday on an everyday uh, on an everyday level. So I guess I would take, uh, you know, take that and kind of spin it around from reading a little bit of your, uh, you know, some excerpts of your book. You know, what is money? And, and I've done seminars where, uh, you know, and again, um, I'm not sure if you know this, but my background, aside from the investment management is why well, I used to be a professional trader, but also um, what I study is behavioral finance and kind of how we think about money and what we do with it and why we do what we do. And, and I've done workshops where I'll say to people, you know, what is money? And people have this blank look on their face, you know, and I'll often quip that it's, you know, it's a piece of paper with green ink on it and some president's <laughs> face on it, right? Um, you know, and that, that it's got, you know, there's different ways to kind of value it. But I'm curious your, your take on it and um, – how you would define it? You know, what is money? Well, well, that's a that's a very good question, and we've actually had hundreds of years of experience uh, as humanity in uh, actually thousands of years in money and currency and economics. And when we go back to define money, uh, the Constitution uh, has a you know it has an interesting phrase in it uh, under Article One, Section Eight. The Congress is given the power to coin money and regulate the value thereof, and that provides a little bit of an insight or a little bit of a clue as to how we define money. How I like to define money, uh, as opposed to money substitutes or illusions, all these three can all be currency. And see, that's the problem. We're not very specific in our language. Uh, money must be a tangible asset. And the reason it must be a tangible asset is so that at the time of when a transaction is settled, it is also extinguished, because there's a difference between settlement and extinguishment. Now, uh, an example would be you order a hamburger, and at the time of settlement, you exchange, uh, say, a silver coin, because the silver coin would be a tangible asset. It would be silver. It would have value in itself. So at the time of settlement... Uh, you give a silver coin for the hamburger, so the hamburger was value and the silver coin was value, and so the transaction was settled and it was extinguished. Now, if you were to use a silver, a silver certificate, that would be a money substitute. And at the time of the transaction, it would be settled. You would give them a silver certificate and they would give you the hamburger. But they would then have to take that money substitute and pass it on to somebody else for value before that transaction uh, with the hamburger was extinguished, before they received value in exchange for the value that they that they gave, and so when we use money substitutes uh, in ex instead of money in transactions, we actually incur additional risk because that money substitute can become worthless. Uh, Interesting. It hyperinflation or all types of things. So it, it adds an additional layer of risk to the transaction. See, that's an interesting thought. So, I mean, when we kind of break this down, when you, you know, if you went back however many years, I mean, someone could more or less say, you know, I'm going to give you a gold coin and you're going to give me this. And I know the gold coin is worth this. 
Um, and uh, now I've heard interesting, um, interesting theories on this, but I'm you know, obviously you know much more about this specific area than I do. Where we got away from that was it was just too heavy. <laughs> Literally, it was that simple that people couldn't lug around, you know, a thousand pounds of X to, 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 <laughs> well, to. Well, right. I mean, and we've used humanity has used all different types of commodities to function as currency. Uh, and money, whether it's salt or cows or uh, giant stones or tobacco or gold or silver, uh, those became the monetary commodities. Uh, but yeah, I mean, but really what what led to uh, getting away from using money as currency in ordinary daily transactions, uh, using silver, for example, or copper uh, to pay for your bread or to pay for your hamburger, is... Uh, the rise of a practice known as fractional reserve banking. And what what would happen there is you would take your gold coin and instead of taking the risk of perhaps getting robbed on the street or losing it, you would go the individuals would go and put it in the in the with the goldsmith or with the bank. And then eventually the the goldsmith or the bank they realize well not everybody wants all their gold at the same time, even though they have the right to withdraw that that uh that deposit, and so they began lending out uh, a portion of of the gold and earning interest, and so that gave rise to a practice known as fractional reserve banking. But as soon as if everybody, if you, if there are a hundred ounces of gold deposited in the bank, and people have the right to withdraw a hundred ounces of gold, and the bank lends out fifty ounces of gold. Uh, then the bank is technically insolvent because they can't both uh, re- they can't redeem the hundred right, right. ounces that have been deposited, and so that led to uh, bank runs and uh, eventually and, and and the reason it led to bank runs is because it's a little bit it's more risky you know it's, that's why you get you get to collect the interest on on the stuff and so that led to uh, bank runs and it became bank runs became a very destabilizing force in the economy because. Uh, it's inherently immoral because it's a form of fraud or embezzlement to engage in this fractional reserve banking. Uh, but what happened is uh, we 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 kept moving away into less safe, more risky assets. Uh, these money substitutes, which were banknotes for uh, redemption of deposits, and eventually, uh, after we got rid of the gold standard, for example, we came to use an illusion as our currency, and this illusion is guaranteed no purchasing power at all. Whereas the money used to be redeemable for gold or for silver, uh, that ended finally in 1971. And so since that time, we've been using an illusion. And because we we use this illusion, uh, the bank runs have not really become uh, much of a de- uh, much of a factor yet, because uh, we have institutions like the FDIC where they don't have to actually redeem anything of value. They can just press a button on the computer uh, to provide enough illusions to satiate the, uh, the, the need of depositors to get any of the money uh, out of their accounts, even if it's insured, but the bank has gone bust. And we've seen a couple banks uh, going bust lately, like Wachovia, or Washington Mutual. Well, there's been a bunch. I think there's like 14, you know, 14, you know, this year that have been declared insolvent. A couple quick things. 
Um, well, I guess the first is uh, for the listeners uh, who might just be joining a little late. You're listening to Your Money Matters, and I'm your host, Mark Perlman. We have with us Trace Meyer on the line. Interesting perspective. He's a monetary scientist and entrepreneur as well as a journalist. And uh, what he's going to do, or he has been doing, and is going to continue to do, is is kind of shed some light on what is money and, and and currency and gold and how that all interacts. And I think you'll find it's a it's a fresh perspective. One of the things that I noticed you uh, you had thrown in there is you said a run on the banks, and you threw in the word yet, which uh, I'd like to. Get kind of, uh, I think that that forebodes a little bit of what you might think might be going on. But to kind of tie this to, together. So, all right, that, you know, this makes sense. Now, all of a sudden, and I, I like the way you kind of phrase it as an illusion, because, I mean, our government, I mean, they can just monetize. Whenever we need more, quote, unquote, currency, they can just go print more of the stuff, whereas gold, there's a finite amount of it, and there's, that's what it is, as opposed right. to... Right, and, and see, Ludwig von Mises, uh, in, in one of his books, he wrote that uh, it's impossible to understand the meaning of sound money without understanding that it was devised as a as a as a bulwark against despotic inroads on the part of governments. It belongs in the same uh, area as constitutions and bills of right. And so, when the when the government is able to uh, create these illusions out of thin air, which are legal tender for all debts, public and private, they're able to engage uh, in confiscation through inflation which is a form of taxation without representation or without due process of law. And this power is explicitly prohibited in the United States Constitution. And so what has happened is uh, the Cain, John Maynard Keynes, he actually likes to call gold a barbarous relic. Uh, well, gold and silver, they're not mere uh, barbarous relics or barbarous commodities, but they're essential checks and balances in the political machinery of the country. And be, and as we've moved away and had these checks and balances eroded, we've also seen the rise of of, of special interests or factions, as the founding fathers like to call them, and we've seen the rise of of uh, people losing a lot of their money and and other people stealing it and yet being rewarded for it. Through bailouts or other types of of, uh, of political machinations, and so it's it's really an interesting area because eventually what will happen is the illusion will completely evaporate because it has no purchasing power and it will be abused and they will print too much of it uh, and whether it and and so the Federal Reserve note dollar will eventually become worthless, just like the Zimbabwe dollar has or the Argentinian peso or thousands of examples throughout history, the continental dollar, uh, the German White uh, Republic uh, Reichmark. So that's what's happening, is that the Federal Reserve note dollar is the atom that all of our political and governmental structures are built upon worldwide because it's the world reserve currency. But because it's an illusion and it's guaranteed no purchasing power and it has no intrinsic value, it's, uh, it's fundamentally unsound and unstable. And it's that atom that is evaporating. And as it evaporates, it's also evaporating massive uh, organizations that have been built uh, upon that illusion, whether it's Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or even governments like Iceland, for example. So this is quite a this great credit contraction. Uh, the title of my book is quite 
uh, it's quite an event that's going on and will continue to play out for uh, many months and years ahead. That's a, you know, I mean, it's as as much as it is illuminating. It's also terrifying when we stop and look at it because, you know, in some of the examples that you cited, um, it, it doesn't appear that it's got the world domination as the U.S. dollar. I mean, for example, oil is quoted, and although I think at some point that's going to change, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. And I've mentioned this before on uh, on other shows that that would become quoted in euro dollars. But as it stands today, you know, they're quoted in U.S. dollars, and that's. There's a very interesting relationship between gold and oil uh, that I've written about uh, quite extensively. And if you go back and you price oil in terms of gold, because, see, gold is not a mere portfolio asset. It's a currency, just, uh, just as much. A, it's a, actually a stronger currency than, than the Federal Reserve note dollar or the euro or whatever, because gold doesn't evaporate and I mean, it starts melting at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's very right, difficult right. for gold to evaporate. I mean, it can sit at the bottom of the ocean for 500 years, and, and you pull it out, and it's just as good as when it went down into that very corrosive atmosphere. So gold is money, and it maintains its intrinsic value uh, over time very well. And so w- in regards to oil, is if you go back and you price oil in terms of gold for the last you know, 60, 80 years, it's taken between one and three grams of gold to buy a barrel of oil. And yet the price of oil in terms of dollars is widely up and down. And, you know, it, it used to be a dollar a barrel, and then it was $147 a barrel. And, I mean, it's all over the place. And so what we see is that gold is very effective at performing the pricing mechanism whereas it's the fiat currencies, the dollars or the euros, that add so much of this uncertainty into the market and into our ability uh, to perform mental calculations of value because that's really the value that gold adds to humanity and the reason that we produce it. We have units uh, to perform mental calculations of length. We have units like feet or meters, uh, but to perform mental calculations of value, uh, we, for the most part, uh, financial professionals, we use this illusion that has no definition. And so we, we tend to make very grotesque misallocations of capital, which wouldn't have been made if we had a more reliable instrument or tool in order to perform that calculation. Well, let me uh, ask you this question. Uh, and I understand, I understand exactly what you're saying, at least I think I do. Um, and it's and it makes sense. I guess my question is this: If we went back, you know, three hundred years ago, and using your hamburger um, example, it's a face-to-face transaction. I hand you X, and you hand me Y, and it's done. In today's day and age, very few, relative to all the transactions that get done, are done that way. I mean, uh, you know, I built a house, and I never have physically touched the hundreds of thousands of dollars that was involved in that and 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 these different things so how could you even let's just say for 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 fantasy's sake that we actually had a hard currency gold coins whatever you want to use how could that possibly be done from a logistical standpoint well, I mean, that's a, that's a very simple question. 
Uh, and there, there are actually uh, instruments and tools and services available that allow that to happen. Because when you look at, at our attempts to harness the power of the information age, the Internet, and apply it to money and currency, uh, our attempts with debit cards or credit cards, that's kind of like the first attempts at building an automobile. It looked more like a horseless carriage. But with the rise, and, and there's actually been uh, one of, you know, there have been several of these. They're called digital commodity currencies. Uh, there have been several of these uh, around for over a decade now. Uh, for example, one that I talk about on my website, what they do is they purchase gold bars on the LBMA, the London Bullion Market Association, which trades billions of dollars every day of physical gold, and so it has chain of integrity and chain of custody, so you know that the gold is gold and not a lead bar painted gold. Uh, they take you, you can purchase LBMA quality gold. They stick it in a vault uh, somewhere in the world, whether it's London or Zurich, or they're thinking about opening a vaults in Singapore, and then they digitize an amount of ounces equal to the gold ounces that you own in the vault, titled in your own name. And then those digital ounces circulate as currency. And, uh, for example, I can log into my account on my iPhone, and I could send somebody uh, an amount of gold or silver ounces. They also vault silver bars and digitize them. I could then send uh, that gold or silver over my iPhone to the merchant who gave me the hamburger. So instead of paying with a debit card or a credit card, which bears all types of uh, counterparty risk with the banks, which uh, bear the payment risk because they get the illusion and then they have to pass the illusion on before the transaction is extinguished, I can log in with my iPhone and pay for my hamburger with gold or silver uh, that is titled in Zurich and they know is gold or silver because it has that LBMA chain of integrity and chain of custody. And then it's all, uh, all the bars are physically audited by Deloitte and Touche, and uh, there's a very strong corporate governance so that you know that uh, there's not any type of shady dealings going on right. with double counting bars of gold or whatever. And so that's, I mean, the, this system, the, the, this tool has been available now for, you know, about a decade. And actually, I, I engage in different ordinary daily transactions using. Uh, this currency, which is actually money, because I own the gold in the vault and it's titled in my name, so it can't be lent out to anybody. So there's no fractional reserves uh, of that gold at all. It's actually 100% reserves, and it's a commodity, so it can never become worthless. And so what that does is it removes tremendous amounts of risk between myself and my assets or my cash balances. And and that's really what it is. Gold and silver are cash, whereas the the Federal Reserve note or euros or auction rate securities or mortgage-backed securities, those are just like cash because they can become worthless. Mm -hmm. They're not as safe and liquid as the monetary metals. But that's how it can be accomplished logistically. It's a, it's a great, great um, vantage point, and it's one that's not really readily talked about. Uh, and, and it's frightening to think that what we hold in our wallets uh, could actually become worthless. If it's well, yeah, and, and it's happened thousands of times throughout history. I mean, we just haven't really had uh, a major currency crisis in America uh, for a couple hundred years. 
but we're going to have one. The dollar is doomed. It's impossible to uh, to balance the Federal Reserve's balance sheet without some massive monetization, as you talked about. And so the Treasury bubbles will it will burst either through hyperinflation or through default. Well, not necessarily hyperinflation, uh, like we t- we tend to think about it with Zimbabwe or or uh, Weimar Germany. But there will be massive uh, in- increases of the money supply in order to monetize whether it's these upcoming Obama. Uh, governmental deficits or uh, other, you know, rolling over some of the T-bonds. And so I think the bond markets are starting to price in a little bit of this inflation risk, which is really just a confiscation of wealth, uh, a form of taxation. And who they're going to be taxing are the savers who own these bonds because they're going to erode the purchasing power through uh, that monetization. Now, I want to talk a lot more about that on the other side of this break. I got to take a break here, but I do want to—I uh, do want to spend some time talking about this because it's a frightening thought, and history can be a great teacher. Unfortunately, for most of us, we—we, we, you know, our history goes back to our own life experience, which could be whatever, thirty, forty, fifty, seventy years, whatever it might be, as opposed to going back a couple thousand years and reading some of the books and and, and things. But hey, you've been listening to uh, Your Money Matters. I'm your host, Mark Perlman. And uh, we've got Trace Meyer with us. He's a monetary scientist uh, as well as an entrepreneur and a journalist, holds a degree in accounting as well as law, and uh, he subscribes to the Austrian Economics School of Economics. And he's also the author of The Great Credit Contraction. And we're talking quite extensively about currency, what it really is, and some of the vulnerabilities that we're all exposed to. But we've got to take a break here. Don't go anywhere. We'll be back in a short minute. Okay, and we're back. All right, so this is, uh, you know, it's very humbling and very frightening to kind of think. There's been many, many bubbles just in my own, you know, 40-plus years of uh, being on this earth. I mean, there's the Internet, you know, the technology bubble, and then, the, you know, what we're enduring now is the real estate bubble. The Treasury bubble, as, as you're talking about, that has uh, obviously more far-reaching consequences, not just in our country, but really worldwide, since the dollar really, the U.S. dollar really is, you know, has infiltrated so many different, uh, you know, corporate holdings and governments and things of that. It's really become kind of that global currency, although the euro, um, you know, I think you can make some arguments for that. But it's all based on the same thing. And I, I guess one question that kind of comes to mind quickly when you talk about, uh, you know, actually having gold in this, in your example, digitized and it's in your account with your name and it can't be lent out. I mean, the whole practice of banking is really based on the fact that, you know, I make a deposit, they take that money and they more or less, they put some velocity on it by lending that back out. If, if that couldn't, couldn't take place, if they weren't able to do that, then the banking industry as we know it would, would be non-existent. Am I misinterpreting this or am I well, not taking something? Well, I don't think it would uh, become non-existent, but like the newspapers uh, and the Internet has affected the newspapers quite a bit, I do think there would be quite a bit of creative destruction uh, that would happen with the banking industry uh, because they're going to – originally how banks worked is you had banks that took deposits and then you had other banks that made loans. And they were, there was actually a strict divide between these two different types of banks, the ones that took deposits and, and engaged in the transactions, the clearing of, of the banknotes or checks, and then the, the banks that actually made loans. And what, had, what happened in an old 
uh, English case, uh, Foley versus Hill in 1848, uh, Lord Cottenham, he ruled that this practice of fractional reserve banking was uh, legal and wasn't embezzlement, and so then we had this uh, big rise of fractional reserve banking. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's an inherently unsound practice, uh, but we've been doing it for a couple hundred years, and what it and and it's had a big effect on interest rates and the velocity of money, as you as you say, because there there you know there are definitely uh, some economic advantages in the short term to having uh, to having fractional reserve banking and using illusions. It stimulates uh, a lot of of economic activity in the present, but it does it at the expense of the future. Uh, but now we're entering the future. You know, if, uh, John Maynard Keynes, he said, well, in the long run, we're all dead. Well, Keynes is now dead, but we're now in his long run, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> which is right. now our short run. Uh, but, yeah, it it can be actually pretty frightening because we're not talking about a mere exchange rate adjustment. We're talking, you know, at the risk of sounding melodramatic, we're talking about the collapse of a worldwide monetary system the biggest in history and we in in this bubble that has been forming this bubble of fractional reserve banking and fiat currency this bubble has been forming for 800 years but now with advancements in technology we don't need either illusions or fractional reserve banking uh, for people to hold their cash balances and, in, and engage in ordinary daily transactions and so that that can have tremendous uh, implications because People are able to seek safer, more liquid assets. They're able to go straight to the gold, and then they don't lend the gold out unless they know exactly what they're lending it out to. Uh, and so, you know, there isn't a bank that takes the deposits, and then the bank decides, oh, well, who's going to get the who's going to get the money? Uh, they, they people have to individuals or corporations will have to go directly to uh, the people who have the gold that they're holding in Zurich and get them to lend it out. And I and I do tend to agree with you that it will probably be a lot more difficult to encourage people to move out of those safe and liquid assets uh, and lend it out, whether it's to build a home or start a business or whatever it is. And that, of course, will have uh, quite a bit of an effect on the velocity of money and uh, economic activity in general because using the illusions in, in fractional reserve banking, it actually... Uh, the, it, it has effects on interest rates, and interest rates, they uh, regulate production over time in the business cycle. And so we've actually stimulated a lot of production now, uh, whereas that production would have taken place uh, over a greater period of time. The car companies are a great example of that. They've built a whole bunch of cars today, even though nobody needs cars, and it's because of this uh, governmental interference through fractional reserve banking and the interest rates. And so we'll, we'll have a much sounder, uh, much more stable economy uh, if it's built on a physical commodity without fractional reserve banking, but it might not be as fast of an economy. <laughs> right, uh, like, right. And that's, like I think, and I think that's a very important thing to take notice of because very few people and certainly very few uh, governments are willing to do something where we get no benefit at some point in our lifetime. And what you're talking about, I think it falls in line with that, where if the benefit is 100 years from now, very few people are going to make decisions that um, don't benefit them in the short term. That's my own thought. Right. 
Hey, you know, yeah. let's let's talk about this for a second too. Is, is you'd mentioned it before, and I've mentioned it before in other shows, and it's come up, and it's a term that um, is becoming more widely used in the in the media today, and that's hyperinflation. Can we talk a little bit about that? What it is, how uh, and why we're incurring it, how it's going to affect us, maybe some ways that it, we could avoid it if that's possible, which I'm not completely sure that it is. And, uh, and just how people might actually even be able to profit from it if it comes to fruition. Sure, sure. We can, we can go right down, down that path. I, I actually wrote an article back in August uh, addressing the issue of whether the U.S. dollar is in hyperinflation okay. uh, currently. And what I did is I took the international accounting standards, which are used uh, by our, by our um, accounting, you know, our accounting uh, professionals, and I used gold as the presentation currency because, remember, gold is a currency. And so, really, people should keep their income statements and their balance sheets in terms of gold ounces uh, to perform those mental calculations of value because a Federal Reserve note dollar, what is that? I mean, it doesn't even have a definition. So, I mean, your net worth went up in Federal Reserve notes, but you don't know if it went up in terms of value. So well, let me ask you a question. That. Kind of to back up for that for a second, I had read an article, this is years ago, when gold was about $450 an ounce, and obviously now it's almost double, it's basically double that. But but in the article, it just it talked about gold, and it said, at one point, an ounce of gold could be exchanged for a, man, a man's suit. One man's, you know, a, a suit, you would exchange one ounce of gold, and you would get a, a reasonably good suit. And the article went on to discuss how it hasn't really appreciated in true value that in today, which is, uh, you know, going back maybe in the 80s, that one ounce of gold would buy one man's suit. And your, your thoughts on that, because I remember reading that and thinking, wow, that's an interesting, an interesting, well, an interesting. Well, I, yeah, I don't necessarily think I agree with that particular article as far as like a suit goes, because we as humanity, we've gotten a lot more efficient. We have... Uh, supply chains and we have ways of doing business and we're, we're a lot more efficient through the use of machines and uh, technology so you know part of that I think uh, gold has actually increased in its uh, purchasing power a little bit but this does raise an issue uh, sometimes gold is cheap uh, and and it will not buy very many suits and sometimes gold is expensive and it'll buy a lot of suits uh, but in order to tell whether gold is cheap or whether gold is expensive, you have to use gold to perform that mental calculation of value. Because gold fluctuates in its in its uh, in in how desired it is as an asset. Uh, it'll fluctuate in that just like any other uh, asset, such as the Dow or the S and P 500 or real estate. And you can actually, uh, I have a couple charts on my website, RunToGold.com, uh, that are right on the the front page where I price the S&P 500 in gold and where I price uh, the average American house in terms of silver. And so you can see, oh, well, of course, uh, houses were expensive at this particular point in time, and they were cheap at this particular point in time. And so you can see the graph of the price in silver. That's interesting. The same thing with the S&P 500. And so these people who, thought, who, who looked at the Dow, uh, you know, four or five or six years ago, and they're like, oh, the Dow is going to keep going up. Well, anyone who looked at it priced in gold, uh, it was 44 ounces of gold to buy the Dow, whereas, like, in 1980, it only took one ounce of gold to buy the Dow. 
and and 44 was way outside of any historical norms. So of course it was extremely expensive. So anybody who shorted the Dow and went long gold, uh, they did very well because now it only takes about eight and a half ounces to buy the gold, uh, uh, to buy the Dow. Well, is and, that a question of gold being expensive or the Dow being cheap? <laughs> you know, I guess well, you can well, make I an think argument. it's a combination of the two. I think gold was particularly cheap uh, back in 2000, 2001, and I think that the Dow is relatively expensive. Uh, and so now it's about eight and a half ounces of gold to buy the Dow. We'll probably see the Dow hit five or six ounces uh, sometime in 2009. Eventually, it'll probably bottom at about an ounce of gold to buy the Dow. If it, if it gets really crazy uh, with a liquidity crisis uh, in terms of failure to delivers of gold bars or something, I mean, it could get really, really crazy. We might see a quarter of an ounce to buy the Dow. So if the Dow's at uh, at ten thousand, then it you know gold would be at forty thousand, for example. Uh, or if we go into hyperinflation, maybe the Dow is a hundred thousand, but gold would be four hundred thousand. Right, right. Uh, because because hyperinflation, that's just uh, inflation is an increase in the in the currency supply or an increase in the asset supply of whatever it is, and so hyperinflation is just a really rapid increase, and uh, and. We've seen hyperinflation happen throughout numerous nations and countries, and currently, uh, because the dollar is the world, the world reserve currency, we don't really notice the tremendous inflationary effects of the dollar. Uh, but as I went back, as I, as I kind of started this off, I did the article on whether the dollar was in hyperinflation, and I used gold as the presentation currency under the international accounting standards. And the international accounting standards, they say, if there's a cumulative inflation rate of 100% over the past three years, well, based on the metrics that I used, the, the inflation rate of the dollar relative to gold was 106% over the last three years. So using gold as the presentation currency and using uh, the international accounting standards, you would have to apply the hyperinflationary reporting standards uh, to convert any of your dollar assets into gold. <laughs> right. So it, it's a very, uh, but you see no financial professionals, no one really uses gold to perform these mental calculations of value. No one, I mean, who who besides, uh, you know, me out in, out in the weeds, who is, <laughs> right. uses, uh, keeps their balance sheets in terms of gold ounces? Right, right, right. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, yeah, that's one of the things that makes it an interesting and illuminating discussion is because no, very few people think this way. And, right. And, and and see, that highlights the, the, the size and the scope of this mess that we're in because the, just like, uh, Copernic- See, Copernicus was quite a monetary scientist also. He wrote a couple books on, on interest and, and things like that. But he, you know, he, he had the nerve to, to say that the Earth revolved around the sun. And the establishment, they were like, no, no, the sun revolves around the Earth. And then they got their court scientists to come up with all these elaborate models and theories to explain why the, the sun revolved around the Earth. And they even persecuted and even... Uh, tried to, you know, they they were very mean to Copernicus, but none of it destroyed the reality of the fact that the Earth revolved around the Sun. And so likewise, 
gold is the sun of the financial universe. And the reason is because it's the most safe and the most liquid asset. It's risk-free. And yet a lot of financial professionals, they view the Federal Reserve note dollar as being the center and that gold revolves around it. But as we've talked about, the Federal Reserve note dollar can become worthless. So by definition, it can't be the center of the financial universe. You've got to find something that can never become worthless. And that's, uh, that's really what's going on is this basic economic law is at work, and it's uh, beginning, you know, the, the consequences of this gravity are beginning to be felt. You know, we, we, we thought we had escaped the gravity of gold as a world, uh, but now we're seeing that we're being pulled back by this economic law. Well, let me ask you. One, one of them that I discuss in the book. You talk about, you know, uh, we talk about the hyperinflation and whether we're in it or about to um, endeavor down that path. If we do, and I personally think we are, I, I mean, that's my personal pr- slash professional opinion, and I think that um, we're starting to see a rise, even though it's quoted in dollars, in, in the cost of a lot of these energies, you know, oil and gold. How do you see it, and how do you think that people, if that does come to fruition, people could, A, protect themselves, but, B, also profit from that? Oh, well, exactly. There's going to, during this, anytime there's major change, there's, uh, you have to be able to protect and preserve your wealth, but you can also generate a lot of wealth during these, these shifts. And uh, in, in the sample of the, the e-book that I sent over to you, there's a liquidity pyramid. There's this, this big chart, this inverted triangle. And it shows the different uh, liquidity tools that we have in the world economy. Uh, it starts with the, the world's GDP, the little round earth at the bottom. And then you have gold and silver at the very tip. And then you have the, the power currency illusions like the Federal Reserve note dollar or the British pound. And then above that, you've got treasury bonds. And above that, you've got New York listed stocks. And you've got municipal bonds. And, and then there's a big portion of this inverted pyramid that are derivatives. Well, what's happening is capital is moving uh, down the liquidity pyramid into safer, more liquid assets instead of moving up the pyramid into less safe, more risky assets because during a credit contraction, the capital moves down. During a credit expansion, it moves up. Uh, That's one of the other basic economic laws uh, I discuss in the book. And so one of the reasons uh, that we're seeing this huge increase in the currency supply especially the Federal Reserve note dollar, is because so much capital is moving down the pyramid into, uh, you know, what's the, what's the safest, most liquid investment? Treasury bills. Where does everybody run for safety? Treasury bills. Right. And so everybody's moved down into that. But what happens when those become unsafe? Do people move up into less safe, more risky assets, or do they move down into a safer, more liquid asset? And if they move down, they're going to move into gold and silver and other uh, tangible commodities that can function as money, like platinum or palladium or copper. And so that's, what I, that, that's kind of what I see happening, is the great credit contraction has just begun. Uh, you know, it's only a couple years old. And remember, we had an 800-year uh, expansion. This is a huge expansion, so we've only just begun. And the system doesn't collapse, it evaporates as the liquidity dries up and the assets uh, become worthless. 
Well, that's a liberating. <laughs> well, that's a liberating. That? That's a liberating feeling. To, to well, think. <laughs> well, well, it's, it's, it is what it is. It is what it is. It's like you know. I mean, we've fallen out of the plane. Uh, yeah, we're gonna keep going down, uh, but you know there is a ripcord, and you do have a parachute. Uh, and and really, the issue is, well, who's going to get to the safest, most liquid assets first? Right, right. And that's that, <laughs> you know that's like everything. I mean, that's just yeah. It's the you know it's, called, it's kind of the smart money. I do have a question I want to ask you about that, but before that, uh, for the people that are. Uh, uh, either just joining us or have been listening, you're going to hear me say it again. Uh, you've been listening to Your Money Matters, and I'm your uh, host, Mark Perlman. We have with us Trace Meyer, who's an economist, or a monetary scientist, rather, an entrepreneur, a journalist, and he's giving us a very interesting, and an author as well. Uh, he's the author of The Great Credit Contraction, and he's giving us a very different look at what our economic picture might really look like, and he, um, and he highlights that in his book, and it's a, uh, it's a theory or it's uh, it's um, it's from a perspective that's very different than what we're getting in our mainstream media. So I'm uh, hoping that everyone's enjoying this as much as I am. For the people who also want to know what I do when I'm not uh, hosting the show, there's probably not anybody out there who cares what I do when I'm not hosting the show, but uh, I'm going to say it. I do have money management practice, and for people that might be interested in that, you can go check out our firm's website, which is uh, markperlman.com, and that's Mark with a C. If you'd like to get some information about that, uh, by all means, go do that. And, of course, the firm, uh, the uh, radio show website, which is uh, yourmoneymattersradio.com, where you can get information about our guests and listen to past shows and things like that. Let me ask you a quick question here because it's at the top of my mind and I don't want to forget it. Is You hear people say, well, gold is a good hedge against inflation. And people, when they're fearful of, of inflation, they go to gold. Why is that? Well, first of all, it's not. Uh, that's actually a common Keynesian uh, response, and it's actually completely wrong, like pretty much all of Keynesian <laughs> economics. Uh, gold will maintain its purchasing power more or less during times of inflation, uh, but it's during times of deflation that gold performs best because gold is money. And we've seen this uh, during the Great Depression, the purchasing power of gold skyrocketed. Uh, gold bought tons more stocks or bought tons more of, of sugar or cattle or whatever it is. And we actually have seen it during uh, this credit contraction uh, over the past year. You look at oil priced in gold or you look at sugar priced in gold. I mean, I think sugar, uh, its price in gold declined like 90% uh, during some of this uh, credit crisis. And the reason that it does that is because gold is the safest and most liquid investment. And during deflation, uh, cash becomes king. And if we if we say that Federal Reserve notes or or euros are cash, well, then gold is emperor because gold is even more is an even better form of money and currency than those illusions are. Mm -hmm. And so it's during the times of deflation that gold actually performs best. And that's what we're seeing is is that. We've got huge deflationary forces at work because we had this 800-year inflationary expansion, and now uh, the, the credit and debt that had been created, it's beginning to evaporate. And, and so the, the, side, the, the total amount of different assets, both real and fictitious uh, capital in this liquidity pyramid, it's resulting in deflation. This, the, the size of this pyramid is beginning to shrink. 
and and the capital is trying to move into uh, the monetary metals because of their safety and liquidity, but there's just not very much of the metals compared to the pyramid because this bubble is the biggest in history. So what's your your take, kind of the 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 outlook of this crisis that we're in? You know, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe it's 10 years from now, 5 years, 100 years. If If you were to make a bet, what do you think it's going to look like? Well, I, you know, I think that uh I think that the sun will come up tomorrow and I think that people will be cooking breakfast and other people will be eating it and the issue is whether you're going to be cooking the breakfast or eating the breakfast. And the people who will be eating the breakfast will be those who had the foresight uh to understand what was happening and took steps to protect and preserve their wealth and also to generate it. And that means that they're going to have to have real tangible assets as wealth because the illusions are going to be evaporating. So, you know, breakfast might cost uh, half an ounce of silver. (laughs) And if you don't have any silver, well, you're going to have to go cook breakfast for somebody until you can uh, get enough silver to buy breakfast. And what I think what we're going to see uh, on a geopolitical or geostrategic level is that those economies which actually do generate the wealth and generate the the real production are going to increase in their purchasing power. And so places like Brazil or Russia, India, China, uh, their standard of living uh, is going to increase relative to their current uh, standard of living relative to the rest of the economy, while those economies that don't necessarily produce uh, a lot of the wealth but instead live off of the benefits of having uh, powerful illusions such as the Federal Reserve no dollar, uh, they're, they're going to have to go back to work and, uh, and produce something of value for somebody <laughs> in order to uh, eat breakfast. <laughs> yeah, so that, well, That's kind of what I see happening over the next uh, 5, 10, 20 years. Well, I think and, that's yeah. been happening, you know, well, in, in kind of smaller and smaller, uh, you know, in, in kind of a, a microcosm of it when we look at, uh, you know, computers. I mean, that makes a you know that's a great example. Um, you know, if I have a problem with my computer and I call an eight hundred number, I'm getting someone in India. So it's not really necessarily computers, but I mean, labor. Let's put it that way. Right. Uh, it, where these things are starting to go uh, uh, other places, and I, I think it just follows this this path. We look at China, the development going on over there. So the the money aspect of it is just one more block in that building block in that wall yeah now now i do of course uh reserve <laughs> the the opinion that uh it could get really bad because we've made such gross misallocations of capital and so hopefully you know hopefully this what what's begun as a financial crisis and moved to become an economic and a social crisis and and is becoming a political crisis which will uh, hopefully it won't morph into a geopolitical and a geostrategic crisis uh, with resource wars and fighting over oil uh, and you know setting off nuclear bombs and uh, you know that could happen but hopefully it won't uh, but you know it could because we we have built entire infrastructures and we've allocated so much wealth uh, especially Americans into a living arrangement that was based on uh, an illusion to perform all those calculations. So, I mean, 
think about it like a monkey that has to climb a tree to get a banana. Well, we haven't calculated how much energy it takes to climb the tree, and we haven't calculated how much energy the banana yields. And now there aren't really any bananas at the bottom of the tree, and we're having to climb all the way up to the top of the tree to pick that oil out of Iraq. Mm-hmm. And it's getting much more expensive, and and yet we have to do that in order to maintain a lot of these complex systems that we have, whether it's our food distribution, uh, getting food in trucks to supermarkets, or whether it's just suburbia uh, with our houses and things like that. And so it, things could get very interesting because we haven't uh, used a reliable instrument to perform these mental calculations of value. And... Uh, there's actually one of the founding fathers, he was a slave owner, uh, but in the Constitutional Convention, speaking about slavery, he said, through a series of, of cause and effect, God punishes nations for their national sins. And so uh, hopefully hopefully we we don't have too much uh, punishment coming. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, not. <laughs> man in the sky uh, right. for, for things that we've done. But uh, I could see some some very interesting circumstances coming because of how we've allocated all of our capital and well we're certainly starting to see some of that now i mean uh you know maybe not quite at the the level that that we could see it but you know certainly what you what you discussed makes a lot of sense but hey i'd love to sit and talk about this uh, a lot more and i'm sure people would love to listen to it for a lot more but unfortunately uh, an hour show is an hour show. Whether oh, you put whether you put it in minutes or hours or however you want to do it, <laughs> the, the currency of time is exactly that. So, uh, but hey, you've been a great, great guest, and I really appreciate all the insight that you uh, that you have. And um, you know, again, for our listeners, I'm sure it's been enjoyable, and we'd love to have you back and, uh, and talk uh, talk at greater length. So, thank you. Well, well, thank you, Mark, and I think it's very important. Uh, you know, most financial professionals, they don't even uh, listen to these ideas, much less discuss them on their radio shows. So I think it speaks a lot to your ability to help people see and understand and, and rationally and wisely allocate their capital in a way that will help them protect and preserve and grow their wealth. Well, I appreciate well, thank that. Thank you very much. I, well, I appreciate that. And uh, I'll, remind, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll have you on the show every week so you can say that so I, yeah, <laughs> so I get my props. <laughs> but, uh, hey, again, for the people who have uh, been enjoying this, uh, that was Trace Meyer, and I'm your host, Mark Perlman. And, of course, you've been listening to Your Money Matters. But uh, make sure you come back next week because we'll have a lot more to, uh, to talk about. But stick around. we got Alan Combs coming up next. So uh, if you want to listen to his show, stick around. Until next week, again, I'm your host, Mark Perlman. Thanks, and have a prosperous week. You've been listening to Your Money Matters. Mark Perlman is a registered representative of and offers securities through Securities America Incorporated, member FINRA and SIPC. Join host Mark Perlman next Sunday at 7 p.m. for another edition on KB 1520. For more information about upcoming shows, please go to yourmoneymattersradio.com. For more information about your host, Mark, please go to markperlman.com or call 631-3232. Securities America is a firm does not make a market in, conduct research on, or recommend the purchase or sale of any of the securities that may be mentioned in the broadcast. Information on this broadcast is for informational use only and should not be considered financial, tax, or legal advice. Please consult a qualified professional for specifics on your situation.
You've been listening to the RunToGold.com podcast, the premier source for applied monetary science on the web.